Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 220th episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a top young actor, Freddie Highmore, who is currently starring on the highest rated new drama on network television, ABC's The Good Doctor, a show about a young autistic surgeon for which Highmore already has received a Best Actor in a Drama Series Golden Globe nomination and may well be on his way to his first Emmy nomination as well. The 26-year-old, as you'll probably recall, first made his name as a child actor who held his own opposite Johnny Depp in back-to-back films, 2004's Finding Neverland, for which Highmore received a Best Supporting Actor SAG nomination at the age of just 13, and 2005's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. A few years later, he returned to the spotlight on TV, earning raves and three Critics' Choice nominations for Best Actor in a Drama Series in 2014, 2015, and 2018 for his portrayal of Norman Bates on A&E's Bates Motel, a prequel to the film Psycho. Now, with The Good Doctor, which he agreed to do almost immediately after Bates Motel came to an end in 2017, Highmore is doing perhaps his best work yet, and is certainly reaching his largest audience yet. The show's premiere became ABC's most-watched drama pilot in 21 years, and the entire first season registered as ABC's most-watched new show, as opposed to a rebooted show, Roseanne, in 13 years, since the first season of Desperate Housewives. Over the course of our conversation, Highmore and I discussed all of the above, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Boris Kitt, a senior film writer here who oversees Heat Vision, which he calls our geek blog, and who, when he's not breaking news about deals in the industry, lives for popcorn movies. Today, as we head into the Memorial Day weekend, it is a big day for Boris and other people like him because a big new popcorn movie is opening. Solo, a Star Wars story. And so I particularly appreciate him taking a few minutes to talk to us about it. Boris, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So to begin with, I just want to set the scene here. How important is Star Wars to you, and how did your love for it begin? Oh, man. With many people, I think it's, I saw it at the right age, where I became like one of the defining movies of my life, and just lived, breathed, and dreamed Star Wars. And how old were you when you saw your first Star Wars film? I was a little kid. Little kid. A little kid. So Solo, a Star Wars story, opened at midnight, I guess, last night in a lot of places. And that was after premiering in Hollywood and screening in Cannes. You've seen it. So without giving any spoilers about the plot line, I guess the most important question, is it good? Well, look, the movie is turning out to be quite polarizing. And I don't think, you know, that's not where, you know, Disney and Lucasfilm started this journey when they started making, you know, the movie on probably the most popular, one of the most popular heroes of all cinema. You know, now you have people talking about the merits of of this movie and whether it should have been done, you know, and whether there's even Star Wars fatigue. And, you know, uh, two years ago, no one could have predicted people would be talking like this. Well, it was a pretty troubled production all along, right? We should have, it's not like this came out of the blue that it's not, you know, an A-plus movie, right? Right. I mean, it's, you know, obviously this was like, you know, well, well documented how, you know, the filmmaker team, Lord Miller, who did the Lego movie and the 21 Jump Street movies, they were famously or infamously fired midway through production. And, you know, to have that happen on such a large scale movie is unheard of, mm-hmm. you know, and then and they got replaced by by Ron Howard, who's like, you know, the Hollywood right down the middle kind of guy. And there were some questions also about entrusting this iconic character, Han Solo, to 
a young guy who really, I guess, is best known, what, for the Warren Beatty film Rules Don't Apply? We're talking about Alden Ehrenreich? Well, yeah, all, yeah, and Hail Caesar, and the, Hail the, Caesar. the Coen Brothers movie. Where he, yeah. he was excellent in, and he stole yeah. scenes, you know, against all these heavyweights. But these are this is a big and very different sort of job than he's ever had before, right? Right, and, but, and not only that, he also has to step in the shoes that were previously worn by... Harrison Ford, you know, Harrison Ford made that, he created that role, you know, inhabited it for decades. And to step into something like that is almost a, a no-win situation. Right. Because you, know, you, all of a sudden, no matter what, you're getting compared to somebody that is almost incomparable. And and any actor facing that is, is that kind of scrutiny is going to be very, very, very tough. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to something you sort of referenced a moment ago, which is this idea of Star Wars fatigue. Just to go over some history, there were three years between the first and the second, and three years between the second and the third Star Wars films, then 16 years between the third and the fourth, three years between the fourth and the fifth, three years between the fifth and the sixth, then 10 years between the sixth and the seventh. But since then, we've had one a year. Can you explain why that has happened? I know there's a business reason for it and just sort of the ownership of the franchise reason for that. But, you know, it's only barely five months since the last Star Wars film, The Last Jedi. So could that be leading to fatigue? The five-month thing is kind of strange. And and the thing is, is that you have Marvel movies that come out every few months. You know, you have, you have three Marvel movies a year now, and they all work. They're all successful. People love them. Now, can Star Wars and Lucasfilm replicate that? It doesn't seem like it because clearly there does seem to be something to this universe that while people love it and they love all the characters, you know, I don't know if they need that much. Maybe it's because, I mean, how many times can you hear the John Williams score? Is that too much? People love it, but, you know, when is too much too much? But maybe it's also the conditioning, like the audience of Star Wars, like yourself, the, the diehards were groomed on having sort of the anticipation of, you know, you have a few years between these to get excited or to wonder what what they're going to do and all of that. When you have just a few months between them, I just wonder if it if it might be too much. I mean, you just broke the news yesterday that we know of another spinoff that is now in the works. James Mangold is writing and directing a Star Wars film about Boba Fett. Is there that level of interest in all of these separate characters when with the Marvel films, for instance, at least you know, each of them maybe is more worthy of being the centerpiece of a movie, right? Do we need a movie about Boba Fett? Well, Boba Fett is one of the most recognizable characters in Star Wars. I mean, that's one of the beauty of Lucas's creations is that there's so many characters that just pop out and stand out due to character design or to even these one scene, scene scene-stealing scenes that they do. And, you know, you have to think of like, so, okay, Lando Calrissian, he's a cool cat. But is he cool because we've only seen him for like a handful of scenes? Right. Less is more is, is sort of the motto for a lot of characters, whether it's in, in TV or movies. Right. You know, so that's a danger. But at the same time, you know, there is, like you said, there's a business element to this. Can you explain that for people who don't know just how it was originally George Lucas as sort of an independent entity and now it's not? Right. Disney bought basically Lucasfilm and, and, and Star Wars, and that also includes the Indiana Jones stuff and, and Willow and all that stuff that, that George did for $4 billion. And, and look at the math. I mean, the movies themselves have earned a ton of money mm-hmm. and you know more than have paid off that, that investment. But yes, I mean, corporations sometimes want to give and give and give, 
and there will be a backlash. The enthusiasm will wane. Well, that's maybe even manifesting itself this weekend. We're seeing tracking numbers that show that this could be the lowest Star Wars opening ever when you account for inflation and all of that. What would that signal? Do you think that you know this idea of diminishing returns might actually make them want to spread out a little more, these future installments? I think they will definitely consider that, but also consider this. What happened with Force Awakens set an unimaginable bar because it was a, a once-in-a-generation or once-in-a-lifetime event where you had this movie that people were, have been waiting for and there was a, such a pent-up desire. And that's how a movie like that can make $2 billion. And people were going crazy. Yeah. It was I was there on opening night just with crowds and seeing what, that kind of reaction. And you can't expect that every time. Like, Stolo will still have a strong opening, but if you're going to compare it to Force Awakens and stuff where... There was such anticipation. You can't compare them because it's, it's we're now in a different. Now we're in, in the in the post Star Wars era where you know Star Wars is is a yearly occurrence. They're developing TV shows, live action TV shows. Yeah. You just wonder if they're beating it to death. You know, like, and I wonder as a diehard fan yourself, do you feel that in any way this is sacrilegious to just be milking it for all you can until it's basically dry? The same thing could be asked about the Marvel Universe. Is it sacrilegious to make all these movies? And, you know, people were talking about superhero fatigue. And part of the answer is there can be fatigue, but if you make good movies, then the fatigue doesn't matter. You know, right now, Marvel is on a, such a roll with, like, Thor Ragnarok and, and Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War. No one's talking about fatigue right now. These movies are making, like... A, billion dollars almost or more depending on which movie yeah. and people are, are loving loving all of them and they can't wait for more and they want the characters and it's like this fan fervor so you have to find a, a way to balance that and you have to find a way to make good movies and and lucasfilm firing directors has has become a bit of a pattern on on their projects there were others in addition to lord and miller yes i mean rogue one had a similar situation where they had to redo a good chunk of that movie and Colin Trevorrow was let go from Star Wars Episode Nine, and J.J. Abrams came back. Interesting. Well, I want to ask you about some of the other movies in your wheelhouse that we've been hearing a lot about lately. What did you think of two other films that came hot on the heels of previous installments, you know, over the last month? First, the box office topper last weekend, Deadpool 2, which was just two years after Deadpool. And then the box office topper of the previous three weekends, which has already crossed $1 billion worldwide in record time. You mentioned it a moment ago, Avengers Infinity War, which comes three years after Avengers Age of Ultron, which itself came three years after the Avengers. What have you made of their success? I mean, it seems like everything we're talking about is sequels. Why Why did those ones work? They work because of years of sort of fan goodwill and fan buildup. You know, it took 10 years for Marvel to get where it was, and it took a lot of steps to build up to Avengers Infinity War. And there were a few missteps along the way, but they've been on such a roll, and the roll just snowballed and snowballed. And that movie is massive, and, and people love those characters. I mean, Chris Hemsworth, people almost don't want to see him in anything else. <laughs> but Thor, he can do no wrong. And when he is, for instance, in something else, though, it doesn't always work. How do we explain that when, you know, Chris Hemsworth or Gal Gadot, if you put her in just a straight-out drama biopic or something, the audiences seem to be more loyal to franchises than to the people who captain them these days, right? Well, that's the whole issue of 
the decline of movie stars and the rise of branded intellectual property like Star Wars and Marvel and Lego mm-hmm. and, and Hasbro and stuff like that. And so you people don't want to see Hemsworth in anything other than, than Thor. I mean, you know, and, and he's good. Like if you watch a movie like Rush, which Ron Howard did as well, that's a really solid movie. But audiences did not show up for that. But you give him Thor and they just love the sort of like the winkingness, the comedy and the over-the-top heroics. Is there sort of some symbolic significance to the fact that this week for the first time, just ahead of Star Wars with sort of lukewarm projections for their box office with with this one, that Disney has been passed in terms of stock value by Netflix? This is the first time. And, you know, is this sort of a, a changing of the guard? Disney, of course, in the last few years has made some acquisitions that people thought were brilliant and, you know, in many ways have been. Lucasfilm, as you mentioned, but also Marvel, Pixar, a lot of stuff under the Bob Iger era, and yet Netflix is catching up, it seems. Well, they're not catching up in terms of movies. I mean, right. Disney owns the movie the movie world. They, they, nothing can come close to Disney. Right. I mean, all the other studios look in envy at Disney. They, they try and emulate their whole approach to making these branded and, and cross-pollinated movies, and they can't. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't have the tools, they don't have the material, and they just don't have the skill to do it. We've seen that time and time again. And the amount, their box office is, is a step above everybody else's. Netflix is a whole different animal. Mm-hmm. It's digital. And as we've seen, they are having a really tough time in making movies and in convincing filmmakers or, or festivals to accept their movies. It's, you know, for them, film is an uphill battle. And they're spending a lot, a lot of money at this problem. And, you know, at this early stage, spending money seems to be working for them in the sense that, you know, this past week, they basically got a Michael Bay movie. With you know, Ryan Reynolds. With from Ryan Deadpool. Reynolds, exactly. Yeah. Imagine the idea of, of a Michael Bay movie. Opening on TV, essentially. Yeah, on Netflix is, is bananas. Maybe there'll be some kind of, you know, theatrical release component to it. I've heard rumors of that, but I'm not sure if that's true. Mm-hmm. But just, just like you said, just the idea of Michael Bay movie with Ryan Reynolds is like mind-blowing. Yeah, and I guess just another thing that has to do with both of those operations that's worth looking at is Disney has either announced plans to or has already actually moved forward with pulling all of its content off of Netflix and is intending to start its own streaming service operation. So they are not going to continue to kind of boost Netflix by licensing anything to them, right? These, this is going to be a kind of a head-to-head thing in the digital space for years to come. Yes. I mean, they are launching their own service and you're going to see you know, original Star Wars material and original Marvel character stuff on their service. And I think, and people will subscribe. Yeah. So looking ahead to the summer, I wonder what you are tracking the most closely, both from a business standpoint and just from a personal interest standpoint. I know your blog has covered the fact that Disney and Pixar will be releasing another sequel, Incredibles 2, which comes 14 years after the original, The Incredibles. That's coming out June 15th, and it's tracking historically well. It's tracking to be potentially the, the biggest opening for an animated movie of all time. That's amazing. So, I mean, that's one sort of thing that's coming. What else is on your radar at the moment for the rest of the summer? I'm hearing good things on Mission Impossible, the Tom Cruise movie where he's, you know, he's as always doing all his own stunts. You know, all the producers are butting their nails, hoping he doesn't die. There's the Jurassic World sequel, which is, I'm actually hearing surprisingly excellent buzz. And people have been telling me that it could be one of the best Jurassic movies since the first Spielberg. Wow. Which, again, a lot of people have been a little bit wary and, and 
you know, burnt out by like that nostalgia and stuff, but mm-hmm. this movie could really heighten and get things, you know, really people excited. 25 years after the original. That's yeah. amazing, yeah. There's uh, Ocean's 8, mm-hmm. you know, the, the all-female spin on Ocean's 11, which I've, I've been hearing, I've talked to people who've seen it, mm-hmm. who say it's a lot of fun. Marvel still in the game with Ant-Man and the Wasp, okay. which, again, you know, look, you can't come, you know, it's not going to make $1.5 billion, right. but it's still going to be, it's, it's a totally different movie. Dwayne Johnson is coming back with Skyscraper, okay. which looks slightly ludicrous, but it could also work well within his wheelhouse. Yeah, that, that, that poster of him jumping across the skyline. Well, the last two things are this. We have known for some time that the next James Bond film is going to be directed by Danny Boyle and once again star Daniel Craig, maybe for the last time. We did get some new information last night about it, though, and I wonder if you can just share what that was. Well, last night, it was finally announced that this Bond 25 is going to have a distribution deal because for the last several years, the movie's sort of been being developed in limbo and they've been you know, hiring writers and working with writers and, and directors and stuff. And there's been a lot of rumors of who was going to direct the movie and whether even Daniel Craig would come back or not. And yesterday, last night, they confirmed that Danny Boyle was indeed going to be the guy. And Danny Boyle was a bit of a, like a dark horse contender because they had been looking at several people, including Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. who did Arrival. Arrival yeah. And they were looking at Jan Demange, who did 71 and a few other movies. Those were the people on the shortlist and, and, and in serious talks, but for various reasons, those never happened. And just all of a sudden, Danny Boyle came in and he had a specific take and he said, I would do it if only I can do it this way, which is always tricky when you're dealing with the producers of James Bond because Broccoli they're very protective. Wilson, yeah. Yeah. Well, the other big thing, though, is that we now know how it's going to get out to the world, right? We had a confirmed release date yesterday, November 8th, 2019. And distribution, And yes. distribution, which is an interesting model, right? Because MGM does not have a domestic distribution arm, but they get to do the domestic distribution through... Annapurna. Annapurna, right. which has never handled anything on this scale before, right? No, this is, this is going to be a, a huge test for them and also a big feather in their cap mm-hmm. to be handling something like this. And then you have, on the international side, Universal, which is a big deal for them because for the last year, people thought that either Sony or Warner Brothers would get the rights to this movie. And Sony has had it for the last few, right? Yes. Now, the, the interesting thing here is that this may not be a big moneymaker right. for the people distributing this because of the terms, yeah. because the broccolis are driving a hard bargain and they and it's really, really for just one movie at this stage. I thought it was amazing reading that Sony basically, even though the last few were huge hits, Sony barely broke even. We found out, I think it may have been through the Sony hack or certainly confirmed through the Ben Fritz book that recently came out. I'm surprised they even wanted back in after that kind of a return. Yeah, I don't know what how people can justify it on a business sense, but on a flip side, people do like the prestige of releasing yes. a Bond movie. So, And maybe they think long-term that if we do a good job, maybe we'll... Well, we can negotiate better terms, but clearly that does not really work for right. that studio. Well, the last question is this. It's rare but kind of nice when both the fanboy and awards geek communities can agree on a movie. It does happen occasionally. It happened with The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, for instance. Huge box office hit. Top grosser, I think, of that year and the Best Picture Oscar winner. At one point, it looked like it would happen with The Dark Knight and maybe Wonder Woman. 
the awards community kind of wimped out on embracing those movies. But this year, it looks like it might happen with A Quiet Place, the horror film John Krasinski made, which is at 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and has now crossed more than $300 million globally. And also, of course, even more so, I think, Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, which is at 97% on Rotten Tomatoes and has grossed just under $700 million domestically, $1.3 billion worldwide. That first domestic figure is still the best of the year. The worldwide figure is just behind Avengers at this point. But these could both end up as Best Picture nominees. Well, before you answer or comment on any of that, let's not forget that Get Out was a was a major contender last That's year true. and did win an Oscar. That's true. And Shape of Water also... Genre uh, film. Want, and obviously Best Picture and Best Director winner. Right. How did you feel about that? I was extremely happy to yeah. see the, those two movies embraced you know, by the public and, and by critics and the academy and stuff so it shows you that like a good movie is a good movie it doesn't matter what the genre is right and you would be okay you're you're on board for a quiet place and black panther those are two of my favorite movies of the year and they're they're moving they're edge of your seat they you know they break new ground black panther completely breaks new ground in, on so many levels and does it in such a colorful way and then a quiet place does it in such a inventive way so hopefully they'll get some kind of recognition. Never would have imagined that in 2018, a silent movie (laughs) could be a huge hit and potentially a Best Picture nominee, but there you are. Boris Kitt, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And now for my interview with Freddie Highmore. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 26-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how he got into the business at such a young age, and how he mustered such mature and moving performances opposite Johnny Depp in both Finding Neverland and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, why he decided to interrupt his career's momentum, head off to university, and take a full break from acting, at least for his first two years of studies, how he wound up returning to work on the small screen, specifically on Bates Motel, and also for the first time working in a writer's room during the show's fourth season and directing TV during its fifth, what it was about the show The Good Doctor and the character Dr. Sean Murphy that convinced him to head right back into TV after Bates Motel ended, and what he has made of the transition from playing a dark character to playing a light one, from working under the rules of cable to working under the rules of broadcast, and from being on a show that had a small but passionate following to being on one that reaches a massive number of people every week, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Freddie, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. We always begin with just the basics on this podcast. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in London, back in the UK, as you can probably tell. (laughs) And my dad brought up my brother and I, and my mum is an agent for actors. Most people, I think, first became aware of you maybe when you were about 12. I think that's when Finding Neverland came around. But you'd already been acting for years at that point. So how did, before it even was a professional thing, what was the beginning of acting for you? I mean, I kind of always saw the start really as Finding Neverland. That seemed to be the first big opportunity. And you kind of go along to the auditions and it was probably six or seven and you keep getting called back. But at that age, you don't have a an awareness of 
you don't, and I still hopefully don't today, but you don't buy into this sort of big celebrity notion yeah, of, right. oh, I'm going to do a film. It was just trying out and seeing how it went right. and then ended up getting it and had a wonderful time making it with great people. And that sort of was the start for me. But even before that, you hadn't been in school plays or stuff that had introduced you to acting was the, just in terms of even just horsing around or whatever at home. What started you on that? I guess friends at the start would say, oh, there's a part for someone to just come and sit in the playground and play football. And I'd be like, oh, great, I can do that. And <laughs> that was a but I never no, I didn't really do any drama at school. And I never really I mean, maybe, you know, when everyone shoved on stage at like six years old, I was probably some shepherd way back <laughs> in the back of the room. But that wasn't my passion. It wasn't when I was that age that this was what I felt like I was born to do and what I really wanted to do full time. It wasn't my career. I guess if I had had a choice, I'd say I'll play for Arsenal. I'll be a footballer, a soccer yeah. player. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and so the fact that you come from folks who are in the business, do you remember just hearing about or just being intrigued by the stuff that was going on around you? Or what led to the first sort of, all right, let's go out on some auditions. That's a step beyond mm -hmm. where most children will go with acting. So what led to that starting? I think, I mean, it was something I had a desire. There was, I was in a way forced into mm -hmm. doing it. <laughs> but it came of a place of, oh, this would be fun to try out. That, you know, I'm lucky enough to have met this casting director who is a friend of my mum's. And, oh, you can come in and see what happens. That's and, what it was. It was a... Yeah, and then I guess you just, you know, Finding Neverland was really that moment of fortune that you get of going through the entire process and ending up with the role and somehow there you are. But I think it's a healthier attitude to have and maybe it's a more British one too of growing up in an environment that even though it may seem the opposite from the outside given that my mum is an agent, we never saw ourselves really as an industry family and I think London helps in being a city that isn't entirely centred right. around the industry right. and I think had I grown up in LA or sort of moved to LA after finding Neverland, then it would have become much more difficult to have to have done other things right. and to have not defined myself as an actor right. and for that not to be who people saw me solely as. Wasn't there stuff before finding Neverland? I, if you look at your IMDb, I know there were not of that scale of sure. parts, but I saw even five years, I think, before finding mm -hmm. Neverland, you maybe your first credit, interestingly, with Helena Bonham Carter, who you know, would be reunited a yes. few times. Yeah, <laughs> there's a great photo of the two of us. Yeah, I think I had like one one line or something saying like in a Scottish or my best attempt at a Scottish accent, like you can have my Mars bar. I think that was the line <laughs> yeah, I said to her. This was women talking dirty. Women talking dirty. 1999. Yes. So uh, I never really read the full script of women talking right. dirty at like <laughs> seven years old. <laughs> and so, but that was really the first professional job right mm -hmm. and then a few other things seem to have preceded finding neverland I, I know there was a made for tv miniseries which might have been an important one along the way you were a young king arthur right in yes yeah you're right you see, i've entirely Avalon. almost like <laughs> forgotten <laughs> yeah but these were things that were never i guess finding neverland was the first that felt like it somewhat disrupted normal life a little bit that you missed a bit of school to do it that these other things were stuff in the summer and a few days here and there but they didn't feel as as big as having big proper scenes and going and doing schoolwork on set a little bit right. and then 
you know, not that I missed a huge amount when I was when I was young, but like those odd days here and there started to yeah. appear. Can you take us from when you met that casting director through getting the part in Finding Neverland? What sort of a process was that? And and it's a big deal. You're going to be working with Johnny Depp and, and a big movie there. Was it a huge vetting process? A lot of steps along the way? I remember going back quite a few times. I would think I was nine years old then or something. When and it so, started. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So not to... So my memory is somewhat hazy yeah. <laughs> of like, each individual's like of the right. of the six auditions. Right. But I do remember sitting with Mark Forster and meeting other, I think it was the time when they sort of got the selection of kids that they hoped would work well together and put us all in a room and we did some scenes. But it's funny when you say, and and of course these people are and were so brilliant as actors and I was so lucky to be doing it. And I took it professionally, but I never saw it as, I didn't go into it with this huge putting them on a pedestal thinking that they're better. It was, and they didn't behave like that either. And so it was just in a room or sitting, Johnny Depp and I sitting on a bench at the end of Finding Neverland and doing this scene, but it felt intimate and small in the moment. It didn't feel, I don't know, like like I'd become someone else or that I was doing something that was huge or big yeah because it might have been intimidating if it did right if you just if you're just essentially playing it makes it a little more fun and yeah and i think that's probably and yeah i guess it's healthier it seems to and that's my parents too and you know to sort of instill that within me or not to or to have an awareness i guess i'm lucky they had an awareness of the of the industry so that they didn't and therefore i didn't buy into any of the hype or any of the the facade that's always thrown up. Yeah. Everybody who's ever worked with you when you were a, a little kid, and I went back and read a lot of stuff, they say that like... <laughs> Searching for something. No, like, <laughs> well, just, you know, just to like, remind myself of, of, you know, things that were covered at that time, they all were struck by how mature you were amongst adults because, yeah, with Finding Neverland there were, and also Charlie and the Chocolate Factory after, obviously there were other kids around, but just that when you were doing a one-on-one scene with Johnny Depp or whatever, that you were, it wasn't like an immature child. It was somebody that was sort of wise beyond their years. And I I wonder if you can figure out, I mean, does that come back to your parents again? Did you have other siblings? Did you have older siblings? What? How did you just as a person, how were you so equipped to handle these situations? Yeah, I've got a younger brother, three years younger. So I guess wasn't necessarily a case of mimicking him. My dad was always with me on sets when I was younger. That base was the sort of perfect base on which to start working properly on things and, and committing professionally to it. And I had a great time, but I think probably, you know, because of him also being there, had an awareness of this is a mature environment, that it's not going in and you know you can't just play football and then run down and sit on the bench and do the scene there's like a but the other actors too I think they you know Johnny Depp and Kate Winslet in in that film in particular who I who I worked most closely with they really took me under their wing and I think they led by example and I was maybe in awe is is slightly too strong but I but I wanted to I saw them as people that I wanted to emulate and I wanted to be a part of that of what they were doing and they were creating and therefore wanted to behave as they were behaving. Yeah. I read that with Finding Neverland, they, I guess, for 
one reason or another, Mark Forster decided to schedule your, in some ways, most demanding scene, the where you just destroy your place, the yeah, the playhouse yeah, yeah. and stuff, <laughs> on the second day that you were there is that right i mean and and that so there was a reason these facts i had like no way and really? i think it would well it would have been weird wouldn't it if it was like nine years old and he <laughs> says like so i've scheduled this scene on right, the right, second yeah. day so you can show them what you can do like there, but it sounds like there was sort of you know i wasn't aware of you, yeah, he wasn't like telling you going that along ripping down the, the plate <laughs> ripping it down and, and it was quite fun i remember those scenes being and still today like that's those more that emotional that, scenes right. are in many ways more fun to do and they take a bit more like effort and preparation to get into whatever age you are but ultimately you're just smashing down this thing and you get to do it over and over again so you said you were at what age when the movie was actually being made i think i was nine nine okay so i maybe incorrectly said said 12 maybe you were 12 when it came out yes it was weird finding neverland had a long because it I think it might have even come out after Charlie and the Chocolate, or very close, close to, to it. it. Yeah, yeah. But there was another film that had the rights to the play, and because there were bits of the play in Finding Neverland, they had to wait an, a year or something. So that exclusivity oh, of like gosh. showing the play on screen right. had been right, right. gotten rid of. So we, so that <laughs> that's that's the delay. Well, I want to read back you something else that I came across Mark saying to the LA Times at that point. This is the scene, I believe. I think the one on the bench where you have, you know, towards the end, quote, we had to come back two weeks later. This was because of a camera problem. And Freddie's performance was so wonderful. I said, I feel really bad. But Freddie said to me, I'm glad we're coming back because I can do it better. (laughs) I was thinking, what can you do better? It was perfect. We reshot it. And he was even better. That last shot where he looked straight into the camera and the tears just holding there. That was that day. And it happened naturally. He's really special, close quote. So I just, something like that, I guess that maybe reinforces the idea that you were looking at it from a, a learning point of view. Like it's, right, it's not, uh, Jesus, we have to go re- reshoot. But I guess the emotion though, to, again, to come back to that, like where does a nine-year-old mm-hmm. draw that kind of emotional stuff from? Sort of as you get older, you know, you become more or slightly more hopefully like articulate to talk about those things. But in a way, the version that I saw it way back when I was nine, ten years old is sort of the same as today. You'd just kind of put yourself in that headspace yeah. and try and believe it. And in that scene, it was the fact that he just lost his mother. And you think about yourself in that situation and how you would feel. And I think the last line of the film is... I can see her and he's looking out, imagining that he can see his mother up there in the clouds in heaven. So you just sort of put yourself in that headspace and believe that that's true. I don't know. I, I'm very bad no, at explaining. That's, that's I'm not, I always fear that I'm going to be sound like some uh, indulgent no, wanky actor no, no, no. when talking about process, but I almost don't have a process to like clearly or or properly explain it's, it. It just seems sense. in some ways that that simple thing I did when I was young is still holds true today. No, I think that's amazing because, you know, people assume that you have to have, you have to have studied the method or something. And yet here, clearly just from, from the beginning, you, you, maybe you just have it or you don't have it as a, as an actor. You don't, not everybody needs a process. You can be kind of just natural, but what was it that happened there? Why did you feel so close to Johnny Depp by the end of this process that it sounds like you were pretty upset when it was over Mm. and he was pretty enamored with you to the extent that not that long after when they've got to figure out who's going to 
be around him in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he went to bat for you. Can you just explain what was at the root of that bond and just how it did work that you ended up in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory very soon after? I think we, and probably that last scene is the most obvious example of it, but I feel like there was a real closeness that we formed through the work that we were doing. And there was a sort of joint secret in a way that by having this scene and people thinking that it was good and feeling inside that it worked out and that that it felt genuine, that you've gone through something together. He was just truly wonderful and, and giving and always, you know, doing everything that he could to be as in his character at all moments, even when the camera wasn't on him at all. And so it was, an in, in, I guess, in that way, like an intense sort of summer of of having those incredibly shared bonds. And I didn't really, like, age didn't really come into it. It sort of, I, I guess I felt like I was part of that adult world a little bit for the first time. And I mean, not, not as an equal in terms of, in terms of experience or in terms of talent, but, but an equal in that, you know, there was no, there was nothing patronizing about being on that set. No one treated me obviously or overtly to in my mind as as a young kid who they've got to make sure doesn't run off and go off the rails i'm not sure if that's exactly what you were getting at but then i was it was great when charlie came along and although i'm still not true there's this story that he said that he got the role for me and i'm sure there's a truth to it you still had to but i did the screen test too but yeah i've never i've never sort of asked him or got to the bottom of you you read so many things and yes yeah i'm not for a couple of years now but yeah i've seen him on enough since next time you gotta get it we gotta know the the truth (laughs) so was charlie and the chocolate factory at all a different experience because you'd already played now a substantial part in a in a big movie and again with Johnny already to now go into another one that's going to be a a pretty big scale thing do you remember feeling more confident more equipped like whatever for that one or it was just because I guess also as you say it had been a few years Mm -hmm. even though they came out one year apart I guess it was lovely to be reunited I mean I remember sitting there in the read through and he came in and it was like oh this is great we get to do this (laughs) over again I'm so lucky but that was also in London and I think the fact that they filmed in London, not only that I lived in London, but that they filmed in London and I would go home and and go into school on days that I wasn't. And that was in the summer, too. So I didn't miss too much school then either. Yeah, didn't didn't make it seem big or huge or or really the sort of travel that that came, I guess, was after Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, really. And so at that point, it was very much, you know, grounded and, right. and lovely in that way. I thought it was interesting and I don't know if this was just the way things worked out because of timing or if it was sort of a deliberate decision that you made, but you had read the book like a lot of kids do, like, mm-hmm. but had elected not to watch the earlier movie version. Why That's was right. that? Yeah, I hadn't seen it, just happened to have not seen it. It wasn't that <laughs> I was waiting at like six years old thinking I can't see it because one day I will, I'm going to play this right, part. Right. But when the film came along I didn't want to watch something and I guess you know my parents were probably encouraging of this too and not watching something else and then feeling like you have to mimic it Mm -hmm. and feeling that what came before is what you need to do Mm -hmm. and so I hadn't seen it before starting shooting and and only saw it afterwards 
I might have started to break into song. You know, it would have been like <laughs> dangerous territory right. to throw me into. <laughs> Over the few years, you know, the next few years after those two movies there where people first really got to know you, it seems like you got a taste of, of, of just a wide variety of different kinds of projects, I guess more intimate scale in a way, a, a good year where you're the younger version of Russell Crowe, August Rush, you were with Robin Williams, but then also these big movies where, I mean, it seemed, I imagine they felt big when you were mm-hmm. making it too, like a Golden Compass or Spiderwick Chronicles yeah. or whatever. How did you feel when you were now exposed to this other, I guess, just in terms of the contrast, do you, did you sure. find yourself gravitating more towards one sort or the other? Well, certainly it felt more serious at that stage and that there was much more of an effect on on the family too when you're not coming home every night but you're going away for four or five months to film Spiderwick Chronicles, for example. And my dad would always come with me and, yeah, I think Spiderwick felt big given that there were two parts as well, that there were these, these twins that I was playing yeah. and it felt more... Not that I've ever, uh, as, I, as I've already said and sort of continue to insist, like I've never been like, oh, it's so interesting from an actor's point of view to do two twins. Or, and I wasn't like indulgent about it, but I still saw the excitement in getting to create these two different characters. Which just and, kind of weirdly little, it's almost uh, prescient that I think there's some echo of that in, in Bates Motel that you've got to play multiple Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was my training yeah. ground yes, way training. back then. Yeah, but that was like jumping between different, you know, being on set and then quickly running off to a tent that they'd set aside and like changing the hair over and changing right. the costume and coming over and then talking to yourself. But it's just right. a tennis ball and sort of remembering <laughs> what you had done. It, there was much more of a process behind behind making that. And on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where all of the sets were pretty much built and so little was CGI in comparison to what it right. could have been. On Spiderwick there was there was much more of a sense of, oh, learning about the filmmaking yeah. process and and the technical side of it. How through Spiderwick, let's say, had your own day to day life been affected by your work? Like it sounds like there were times with Spiderwick, for instance, where you would have to you know, go away for a Mm -hmm. while. How would schooling work? How did this impact friendships, things like that, that were you able to have a a semblance of a normal childhood or was it just, you know, how did it affect things? I think so. I think I did. I've always thought acting has sort of enhanced my childhood and added things to it as opposed to took anything away from it. And I always, you know, up until 18, when I went off to university, I very much was always going officially to a school in London. And when I would go away for Spiderwick, for example, a British tutor would come out with us and would constantly sort of liaise with the school and send work back and forth with them. So I would be following the same syllabus. And then when shooting finished, I'd be straight back to London and sort of into classroom, the the back to school again in a more normal way. But yeah, and I never, I think in part because I didn't really do acting at school, it never... And because I probably started younger too, people didn't see me as this actor when I came back. It was like, oh, Freddie's back. Like, this is nice. We can go and, you know, he can go on the wing or we'll like try and encourage him to play football. I, I, I not to always refer to football. But what about when you, let's say you went to the mall or something with your friends or whatever, you know, things that kids would do. You're out in the world. Did you feel like 
people who you didn't already know were, you know, were you pretty much left alone? Or when did people start to treat you differently just because you're a public figure? I never felt like I was that. It really wasn't a case of like going out and constantly being recognized. I always felt as a kid, like you can bring it upon yourself if you sort of sort that out. Mm -hmm. But if you just go to like the local corner shop to get some sweets after school like no one's sort of waiting or it's just you're just in a group of school kids and and everyone kind of leaves you alone I think it must be much more difficult for kids today who are acting to keep that separation that I managed to maintain between your kind of private life and which is especially important when you're growing up and and the sort of public filming acting side of it. Well, you were also just before, I guess, the smartphone. Well, exactly. That's what I was going to say that no one, yeah, no one could like run up to you and like grab a photo. And (laughs) and also there was no expectation to be on social media and to constantly be engaging with people and talking about it. And, and I think, you know, it's different for everyone, but I really appreciate that I didn't have that, contact really with people who you've never met and and never sort of built these odd relationships through digital space yeah as you've said with in terms of tutoring like schoolwork was always it sounds like a a important priority for you or certainly for your parents for you was it always going to be the case was there ever any doubt that you would go off to college at 18 because you know plenty of People who start as child actors and are getting work, as you certainly were, they're saying, you know, let's not gamble with this. And it goes, maybe it'll go away if I go away for a few years. You not only went away, but you went away to a terrific school, which means you must have been a solid student and you took it seriously. And you want, so just what were, what were the considerations there, you know, en route to you going off to Cambridge, where I don't believe you acted for a chunk of that time, maybe until the second half? Yes. It seemed, much more logical and normal as a progression to me at like 16, 17, 18, that I would go off to university as opposed to never go. It seemed like it would have been a much bolder, bigger choice to have said, I'm just going to go off and do acting. So in that way, it was the opportunity to study at this great place. And it seemed like, why wouldn't I do it now? And, And I think I had a sense then too of having acted for a while that I didn't want acting to be something that when I was, say, like sitting here now at 26th, still doing it, thinking, oh, did I really choose that? Was this something that I made a choice as an adult to do? Or was it something I ended up doing just because I happened to do it when I was younger? And so I think taking that time away and having acting become an active decision and and a choice, an adult choice, was important to me. And that was part of why also you did not act while at... Cambridge, mm-hmm. not only professionally, but even at Cambridge or anything, would there have been, there probably were opportunities yeah, if you wanted to. Yeah, there was a great to. drama scene at Cambridge and wonderful plays. I just never, I never really got into that myself. And I think the difference as well with university learning and high school learning is that you need to be there. There was no point, anyone can look up the syllabus and read the books that are on the reading list in your first few years mm-hmm. at Cambridge. But the point is to be there discussing it with people who are also excited to be there studying the same subject and with amazing professors and teachers who will guide you through it. And I think school, high school work was a little bit different in that you're preparing, at least in England, and this is a sidetrack conversation, but so much of it is like just preparing for exams yeah. and learning to pass exams. Yeah. And so 
you can do that. You don't have to be in that school environment in order to read the syllabus and learn how to fill in the paper to make sure you get a good grade. But university was different. So I needed to be there and it seemed odd to just pretend to be there and actually be doing something else. I read that one of the people who your mother represented, maybe still represents, was Daniel Radcliffe. Yes. Yeah. Is that still? She, she does, still does. Yeah. And that he, I guess he's got a few years on you, right? Mm-hmm. And was he something of a model for you in terms of how to survive child stardom in a way and still, you know, you come back as an adult and not be pigeonholed at, for doing one sort of thing or another, but to have a, a full life? Because I think he, did he also go off to... Well, he he did sort of impressive in in a whole other way, like did plays and and then did a musical in New York, did like Equus, I think, in London Mm -hmm. when he was 17 or something. And so I think that for him was potentially what university was for me, the sort of making a choice to do something different and to not just end up going through the mold of what you should be. And and he also has great parents and Mm so hasn't sort of let it get to him. Right. I guess it was, I think, during your third year at Cambridge that yes. you first hear about Bates Motel. Had you sort of said to your representatives, like, hold all my stuff, I've got other <laughs> things? How did this one seep through? That's what I guess I'm asking. Like, what was it that let this come to your attention while you were at Cambridge? So the cited so languages at university and the first two years were at Cambridge. There was a year abroad and then you came back and did one last year. And during my third year the year abroad, you had to spend nine months of the year in a, I did Arabic and Spanish and I I spent it in Madrid. But that actually meant that you had kind of six months free between like finishing in one academic year and starting in like October of the next academic year free. And so I was like, well, if there's a great opportunity, then something could fit in here and I wouldn't be missing out on the education I wanted to do. And so I guess it was searching for that right project and seeing if that came up and then Bates Motel came along and it all happened very quickly and suddenly that was it. <laughs> do, you, do you remember or have you been told or just how did they come to you on this one? Or how did you come to it? And I guess also I'm just thinking and, and I know you've now really got it down, but the idea of had you done an American accent up to that point? Yeah, a few times before on on a few things. I think August Rush and then mm-hmm. Spiderwick and then The Art of Getting By. And I think they'd seen The Art of Getting By, which I thought was like, or at least was meant to be a nice sort of, you know, teenage romantic comedy. Clearly they saw like Norman Bates <laughs> right in that role. And I think that was for, for like Carlton and, and Carey, the two main writers, executive producers. That was a version that they thought Norman could work as. And so I had a chat with them and obviously Vera Farmiga, she was on board at this stage. And then it was one of those, it felt like a very big decision, bigger than any other decision I've I've really made as an actor because you realize suddenly you were signing on for many years. Was that a seven-year deal? Something or? like yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I, you sort of forget what yeah, the actual yeah, numbers yeah, yeah. are because it's just long enough that right. you... And so that felt like, okay, this is what... I could be doing for a few years, is this definitely what I want to do? And I remember going back and forth so many times in my head of, mm-hmm. you know, I could do these other things. I'd just been working in a, in a law firm for nine months. Like maybe I could, that was an option for me in in a year's time. And so many things seemed possible. And So what tipped the scale? Because I mean, it could have 
it's a dangerous thing to obviously, and it has gone wrong for a lot of people to mm-hmm. touch sort of material that I know that you guys were not remaking Psycho, but it was, you know, everybody was going to associate this with a classic movie that everybody has on such a pedestal. So it could have gone wrong. Gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Vera was one of the main, like it seemed, and the writer, like they all had such great pedigree mm-hmm. and they were all wonderful people when I spoke to them. And so I was just excited. You felt a, it's, and it's one of those things where you, you go back and forth so many times, or at least I do. Mm-hmm. I'm the sort of person who will like deliberate and make a decision <laughs> and then change my mind right. and do something else and then return to it. And then ultimately when it was like the actual time that the decision had to be made and you couldn't skirt around it anymore, I was like, let's do it. This, yeah. this will be great. And, and you can never be a hundred percent certain. And I think you sort of learn that at that moment where of course it might not be the right decision, but if you feel like it is in this moment and this is what you want to do, then you have to, you have to go for it. But, but I was aware that it was a, that there was an inherent risk, I guess, yeah. in doing so. Let's just say that there's somebody listening who missed the boat on that show. They didn't see it when it was on. Can you kind of explain from the way you, you know, as, as you saw it, what it was doing? Because again, you said it was, it's not like it's a sequel. It's not like it's a remake. Mm-hmm. It's it's defined very specifically just what it was and what your character, what the challenge was that most appealed to you about it. It's been a while since I've had to pitch Face yeah. Hotel. Like, how did I describe this right. show? A prequel to Psycho, but a contemporary prequel to Psycho. And Norman Bates is, I guess it was like an 18-year-old guy and 17-year-old guy and was moving into this new motel with his mother, the mother that we know in Psycho, sort of dead in the chair, skeletal, and a figment of his imagination. She is very much alive, embodied by Vera Farmiga. Mm-hmm. And the two of them just move away from their past and have these hopes of setting up a wonderful new life and buy this motel. And over time, each of their Norman's sort of psychological issues over the five seasons and tendencies towards murdering people (laughs) got in the way of of a lot of their happiness. But that relationship was at the core of it all, all the way through. You and Vera worked so well together and and obviously it sounds like really got along in real life as well. I heard you're the godfather of her child. Yes. Is that yeah. right? Yes, yeah, she's one of my best friends, Yeah, her and her husband and kids. And she's really, really wonderful. And oh, I'm so, so lucky to have had that those five years. Like, yeah. I miss her. I miss getting to work with her every day. Well, you're the person then that we should ask, like, what is it that, you know, can you pinpoint what makes her so good as well? I know that, well, you would be the best person to ask. There's a sort of irreverence with which she acts and just... And is so instinctual and so able to come up with fresh ideas in every moment and and has a brilliant ability to do so much that so many actors would would sort of play at something and and much of nor this is probably more specific to like how she portrayed Norma, but there's a performative quality to Norma, and she's big and she's loud, but it's always grounded. It's never over the top. And the subtleties are there, but she's still able to like hit these big notes and and has a great awareness of humor too, and of an infused Bates Motel with that from the very beginning, sort of combining that that heavy drama, but not letting it be melodramatic. Yeah. She's she's truly wonderful. Yeah. And so when you when you look back now as you can at the five 
seasons that you guys did on that show. Do you remember something being the most challenging, the most exciting, the most just in terms of your character evolves Mm -hmm. a a huge degree throughout (laughs) that. And, you know, season three, I know, is when we first see him dressed as his mother. Oh, yeah. Uh, season four, <laughs> we, uh, I guess it's not a spoiler People, if people know that she's got to go down at some point. So just like for the viewers, we, we can all pick our favorites. And by the way, season five, Marion Crane in the form of Rihanna. So <laughs> that like, was so bizarre. Right? A little like little world in Vancouver. Suddenly, <laughs> and Rihanna, Rihanna, shows Rihanna just shows up. But she these... was a huge, came bell because she was just a huge fan of the show, right? Yes. Yeah, I think someone had seen an article that, in Vanity Fair and she had said that everyone thinks I'm bad girl Riri out at <laughs> night but actually I sit at home watching Bates Motel <laughs> something like that I'm paraphrasing but I think for me the like seasons four and five were the most special and I feel like they were the payoff they were what we'd been waiting for it would have been so sad had the show not finished after season three when seasons four and five were what the were ultimately the kind of meat of the whole yeah. thing and it and it raced towards the end without this necessity to hold back any story any longer. And something else happened with seasons four and five, which are that I think for the first time ever you got into things beyond acting. Mm-hmm. Season four, you wrote two of the episodes or you were writer on two of the episodes. Season five, you directed the mm-hmm. fifth or you, you directed the in episode, the, the eighth episode season, of the fifth yeah. season. Were those things that you had always wanted to do or were you thinking this is just a great opportunity to experiment to see if I want to do these things? How did that all come about? Before Bates Motel, I hadn't really, in a general way, if someone said, oh, would you like to write or direct one day? You think, oh, maybe I would. But there were no, I I hadn't really done any of it or it was more just this potential dream that I could one day see myself doing. And I think after even between seasons two and three and then between seasons three and four, I just started to get the sense that it was odd to put so much into this character and to care about a show so deeply. And and I find all things that I work on to be somewhat all-encompassing. And then just step away and like go off and do something else and come back and say, oh, what have you got for me this mm-hmm. coming year? I mm-hmm. wanted to be in part of that wider process. And so I was really lucky to be let into the writer's room in the fourth season. and But it, it came out of that natural desire, I think, to just want to be as a part of Bates Motel as much as I could. And then from that, and those experiences being specific, and it's a kind of perfect place in which to learn those two things too, mm-hmm. I had, you know, more desire to like come up with my own stories and to tell other things. And and then what about directing? That's, that's a whole another level of responsibility. How did that go for you? What did you feel about that? I think in as an actor in a TV show, you have more responsibility than maybe on a film. And episodic TV directors, lots of them come in and out and someone may arrive in season four and not necessarily have seen all of Bates Motel or have certainly not worked on the show before. And so you find that you need to take care of your performance and of the show more widely. And it's a much more collaborative sharing of ideas than maybe it would be on a film set because you have more experience in that world and you feel like you know that character so well. And you also knew what you did last week and what you're going to do next week and it needs to fit in together. So I think that collaboration with the great directors we had on 
Bates gave me the desire to want to do that myself. And that, again, seemed somewhat natural as a next step. One of the things I want to ask you about just as a kind of foreshadowing of what we'll come to with Good Doctor, just in terms of, it's sort of about the reception of a show. Both of these shows, you were terrific on, let's talk about Bates first here. Critics really loved this show and, and loved your performance. You got personally nominated for Critics' Choice Awards three times during the run, you know, but it did not get the overall ratings or the Emmys love that great shows often do. And that it seems like Good Doctor in, in a way has found a huge, just a massive following that we'll come to. When you're in the middle of doing a show like that and you know it's a years long thing, how do you balance those things knowing that on the one hand, you're obviously achieving what you set out to do to an extent mm-hmm. if, if the critical response is so positive, but in some ways, maybe because it's just on a network that people were less familiar with seeing this kind of a show on or whatever, like it's not necessarily reaching a ton of people. How did you feel about the way it was being received by the world? I guess my engagements with people were positive and and we felt like we were doing something that had meaning and that was interesting and that we enjoyed doing, but that we thought was good. (laughs) We believed in it. But no, I, I in no way was I sort of disappointed at, at all at the, I mean, and Vera was thoroughly like deserved and got an Emmy nomination for her performance. And I think that I was just sort of grateful to be a part of the show that goes on for five years, especially it was my first TV show yeah. that I'd ever done. And so suddenly it just felt that getting to tell these stories for five years was success enough in itself. And on top of that, to get to, you know, as we said, write and direct, it didn't, in no way did it feel negative. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of these five years, I think most people would assume at the end of any, you know, long run of a show like that, people are going to want a little break, you know, just (laughs) enjoy their life a little bit. Not that they weren't, you know, or or you, you certainly sound like you were when you were doing it, but like, how is it that literally within a week, I think, of being very... <laughs> done, you're already onto onto the good doctor. How did that happen? I don't know, really. <laughs> I didn't. It definitely wasn't planned. I mean, first of all, how could one ever expect to like finish one show and then right. go straight onto something else that would be equally as interesting and and inspiring with great people? But yeah, I was just there in Vancouver, focused on the last few pages that we were getting through of this big emotional climax to the show and then was off to LA for a few days and then was going to be coming home and read this script on the plane down for The Good Doctor and I guess in a way there was probably a reticence to you're like oh well this is great like of course I'll read it and David Shaw is wonderful so but it's not really going to happen it sort of felt implausible that this could be the next thing I would be doing. And then I chatted with him, having obviously read the script and fallen in love with the character and his writing and sat down with him and the director of the pilot. And it just seemed like, in some ways, maybe crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But also, it just seemed right. And it felt like this is such an amazing opportunity and you have to take them when they come. And when you had been sent that script to read on the plane, was it an outright offer saying, if you like this, we want you to do this? Or would that then spark a process of tests or auditions or how was it brought to you yeah I didn't have to audition for the show I think it was more and everyone you just want to sit down and have a chat Mm -hmm. and I guess that's what Bates in some ways and and I think it will have a longer life too but at least for those who saw it they knew 
well, they saw what I could yeah, do yeah. for a character or what I would invest within it. And so, yeah, talking to David, we just, I feel so lucky to have like gone as well from like Kerry and Carlton to David and just equally as collaborative with such a strong vision and a sensibility that I feel is so similar to my own. And we very much saw the project and continue to see it in exactly the same way. And I feel lucky to to get to support him. And with this one, you also came on right from the start as a producer. Mm-hmm. What Was that something that was important to you? Because again, now you know what it is to be with a show for years and years. You want to have a certain additional measure of control over what you're doing or what's the thought process there why was that important to you i guess by the end of bates motel because i was writing and directing i felt like i was involved more widely on the show and i wanted that to be something that that happened from the start of the good doctor too and maybe you know in a more official capacity and as a producer i just see my role ultimately to to support david shaw and to support his vision and you know offering thoughts and notes that may or may not be used by him (laughs) but just ultimately trying to make the show better and I love being wholly invested in that and I think you know it just gives another reason to be. Was there any aspect of playing Dr. Murphy that gave you a little bit of pause before saying yes? I mean obviously this is a complex character in different ways than than others that Mm -hmm. maybe you would be asked to play certainly i mean and with an added i would think level of maybe a sense of responsibility because you're you're now a face of in a way of a of a whole community of people Mm -hmm. that deal with autism and so i just wonder were you yourself totally confident that you were going to you know we know you can you're, you're a very talented actor but this is just an unusual sort of a part was that something that gave you any pause about just capturing how to portray autism in a way that is accurate, respectful, all the things that I think it ended up being, but could have gone awry. Yes. And that, that was the big conversation that, that David and I had really at the beginning was being aware of the responsibility that we were taking on. And also for me, just coming off five years on something, knowing how much you need to put in to a project in order to make it as good as possible that would be doubled with this new role and so wanting to make sure that that I was prepared to like put in the amount of research and preparation and dialogue with people about Sean and about in what way he has autism and how his autism may manifest it so like all of those conversations seemed seemed big and 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 I was certainly aware that this was a role that I'd have to prepare more for and put more into than any other one that I'd done. Mm -hmm. Once you now say, all right, I'm up for that challenge, Mm -hmm. but before the cameras start rolling, what sort of research and work did you elect to do? I I know it was extensive. Yes, you know, various books, pieces of literature, documentaries that were incredibly useful, consulting with or talking with our our consultant that we have on board the show in depth and in different scenes and beats and and also which I think was incredibly important too not forgetting to still be as I learned from Vera in many ways like instinctive and Sean isn't entirely defined by his autism and not every emotion that he feels or even in what way it may manifest itself or every 
idiosyncrasy that he has doesn't necessarily need to be tied into the fact that he has autism. And so it was crafting him as this fully formed human being, an individual in his own right, and not entirely being myopic in terms of focusing solely on very specific research. Are there specific things, though, that you know when when you're going to slip into character, the camera's about to roll or whatever, what are the things that just in terms of playing this this character are always going to be there in order to be true to the fact that he is autistic? I mean, I know that you do things with your hands Mm -hmm. in scenes and obviously your eyes and maybe, I guess maybe can you just share what some of those things are and why, for people who may not be familiar with autism, why there are certain things that are going to be present with this character and this performance that would not be with with certain others. I mean, I think an example of that would be the way, as you say, that Sean holds his hands. And there's a concept within the autism community that's sometimes referred to as ready hands, which is when children who are on the spectrum are encouraged not to stim by clasping their hands together and therefore won't be making movements that could be perceived as being aggressive or distracting to neurotypical people. And so Sean holds his hands in that way. But for me, it tied in nicely too to his love of surgery. And surgeons usually hold their hands in front of them, clasped together, because only the front part of the body is sterile. So that seemed to be, is almost like the perfect example of how, you know, one of his traits is that he loves surgery and trying to find a way of showcasing that through his body movements and the way that he carries himself. But it also ties into, in some ways, the tragic upbringing that Sean has had and how he didn't grow up in an environment that was supportive and didn't know how to deal with the fact that he had autism and maybe forced things upon him that were wrong. So for you, interestingly, once you've sorted your your own preparation out, you now go back to Vancouver where you had spent all these <laughs> years doing Bates Motel and you're back there with this. Actually, I read with a lot of the same, not a, you know, a, several people that worked also on Bates, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So it felt like that family was somewhat intact, having said our teary goodbyes after yeah. five years. It's like, oh, right here back. we are again. Yeah. But one thing that's yeah. clearly significantly different between the two shows is being on a broadcast network now with with the good doctor with abc versus being on a cable network with a and e more episodes more restrictions on what you can say and show but also a hell of a lot more viewers mm-hmm. how do you feel about all these different the sort of some things you may look at as pros cons just or just how you navigate all of those things what do you make of being on a, on a big broadcast network I haven't seen it to be restrictive at all being on ABC. And in fact, they've been they've been very supportive of, of Sean's character arc and of the fact, especially within procedurals on broadcast shows in general, I think there's a desire to keep things the same week after week and the characters stay the same and they can't change too much because people want to come in and they know what they're going to get. But Sean, for me, has changed so much during this first season and... And we've certainly been allowed and encouraged to do that. The Sean at the beginning, who had never really navigated this world in quite the same way before, has learned and has also taught people around him who have changed because of ways that he sees the world differently and 
and shares that with others. Yeah. So I feel lucky, really, that I'm on a show that doesn't feel limiting in terms of this character in any way. And when you guys were in the thick of making this first season, how confident were you that the, I mean, you knew that you had good material that you were working mm -hmm. from, but how confident were you that you had material that would find an audience in the way that it has? It's unbelievable. Let's just mention a few things. The show's premiere became ABC's most watched drama pilot in 21 years, ABC's most watched show in 13 years, the highest rated new network drama of the season. This is it's phenomenal <laughs> when you think about that when you when you hear that to what extent did you see that coming no i i think it would be you you'd be slightly insane to be like <laughs> this is exactly right. what we thought in fact it's not quite as good as what we were hoping for but but we did believe in it and not at all in like a big-headed way mm -hmm. but we we thought that it would do well we thought that it would find an audience and i think that's logical because if we didn't believe in the pro, if we didn't right. think it was going to be any good and no one would no, want to watch course. it, then who would? But why so, do you think it has resonated to this extent? What is it about the show and the mm -hmm. times and anything else that you can pinpoint that would explain that degree of popularity? In many ways, it's the opposite of, although I will always defend Norman and say he was loving and uh, a wonderful guy. Right. Some people referred to him as an anti-hero. <laughs> and I think that Sean is very much a departure from that. He's full of hope and optimism. And I think people connected to that sort of personality that had been increasingly rare and hard to come by on television. And I think in a time when there's so much negativity that is out there, Sean was a refreshing change from from the news that you might watch after the show. Yeah. How has the community of people with autism and their families and, you know, I'm sure you've heard from them. I know you've also been a friend to them, even apart from the show. I think you've done PSAs and things like that. What's been the feedback from them? It's been really positive. And, and I think the most... In, in a general sense, positive, but the most meaningful moments and and feedback have come from those personal conversations with someone who comes up and shares the fact that either they themselves are on the spectrum or know someone who is and, and that they found something to connect to in Sean, even though Sean is never going to be able to represent or nor should he represent yeah. everyone on the spectrum. The idea that, that people do find things to connect with him with is, is lovely and, and inspiring and, and makes you, makes it worth it. It feels more important. And this is something David Shaw says that in that way, it makes it feel more important than a, than just a TV show. Right. right. Yeah. Well, the last thing is just, you've now in some ways reached, as we just described, I think the largest audience probably yet of, your career through this show, you know, some people who maybe didn't see Finding Neverland or some of these other things, they, they now know and are interested in, in you as well. So what is next? I understand that with season two, you're going to have a few additional responsibilities. <laughs> I've also heard about a, another project. I don't know if it's a film or a TV project, but Babyface, maybe you mm -hmm. can share something about that. And then just generally, are you now totally sold on the idea that this is your life's work to be an actor or is there still a chance you know does law firm still hold some appeal to you or or you know just sort of your overall outlook at this point at you know one season into this great show yeah i'm excited to to write and 
direct this year. That's where I think long term, I I always come back, as we said way back at the beginning, like I always combined acting with something. It was like my schoolwork or, you know, being at home and going to university. And in some ways, the writing especially gives me that sort of, like I feel sometimes that I'm at university, like hidden away <laughs> doing an essay, right. like typing on the computer and it, it adds something else to my life. So I feel like the law firm is probably on hold as <laughs> as I try and yeah develop more projects, both as a writer and as a producer and continue to look for different ways in which I can be involved in that wider process on this show and on others, hopefully. And that's what Babyface, is Babyface a TV uh, or film? So Babyface is sort of a little bit, it was initially conceived as a show that Kerry, Aaron and I oh. were going to do with A&E after Bates Motel. Right. And then A&E decided that they would no longer do scripted dramas. So I still have the rights to that. And that's one of the things that I'd love to develop either, you know, as a miniseries or somewhere in the TV space and or, baby or face Nelson. Babyface Nelson. Yes, I know. I didn't really give the... No, <laughs> no, but I think it's interesting. Just the, the log line is essentially mobster or gangster or, or what? Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. Yeah, baby... I mean, it was in the Great Depression. Yeah. And so, but he wasn't a part of the sort of gang culture. Right. In He wanted to be an individualist. Like he was around at the time of Al Capone, but he kind of went off and robbed banks on his own. But, <laughs> but we kind of saw that as a love story really between between him and and his young wife he was only 24 or 25 when he got shot and Jeez. killed and had two kids and so there was something inherently funny about the premise but also heartbreaking and seemingly contemporary in terms of the great depression then and the recession right. now and and robbing banks in order to give back to to young people so there's a lot in there but yeah but i guess for now the good doctor will will keep you plenty for the busy. time being yes. yeah well thank you so much for doing this no, i appreciate thank it thank you thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on itunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.